Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for Counter Apologetics. So a couple weeks ago, I discussed some of Paul Draper's work uh, regarding the fallacy of understating the evidence. And he's found flaws in many theistic arguments in that they uh, appeal to some general fact that seems very much more likely on theism than on naturalism. And so to that degree, it appears to be significant evidence for theism. But Draper, you know, showed that once we actually look at some of the more specific facts, it's not at all clear once you take in all the relevant data about that topic that these arguments favor theism over naturalism. I just wanted to say I found that to be a very helpful counter-apologetics in that it, it really creates a frame in which you can put a lot of these different arguments under. Yeah. When I first came across that, I was like, this is this is so applicable to so mm-hmm. many of the things that we're dealing with. We've um, tried to say the same thing a exactly. half a dozen times, <laughs> just never so succinctly and, and direct and to the point as Draper did there. Yeah. Now, one of Paul Draper's most uh, influential articles is his 1989 article, Pain and Pleasure, an Evidential Problem for Theists. We've discussed the problem of evil in its various forms on this show before. We've, I'm pretty sure we've talked about the logical problem of evil uh, very early on in the, in the life mm-hmm. of the show. We've discussed William Rowe's argument from evil, you know, the argument that skeptical theism plays so intimately into. But Paul Draper's version of this is, is slightly different, and it's, it's, it's different in some, I think, very important respects. I think it's a very uh, powerful tool in the counter-apologetic toolkit. So this is not just gratuitous suffering all over again. This Correct. is some other aspect. The skeptical theism objection actually is completely powerless against an argument like this. So this is a very meaty article, and I'm going to have to give it a very uh, superficial uh, walkthrough, but I'm going to try and make it absorbable. It might take a couple of listens, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, he's going to be comparing two hypotheses. And so on the one hand, you have theism, which is you know uh, just the core of theism, where you have a, an all-powerful, perfectly loving, and all-knowing being. He's not assuming any particular variety like Christianity Correct. or Islam right. or like a general theism. Kind of. right. okay. And what's important uh, is that you know a lot of times people will say, okay, well that's you know that's all interesting and stuff that you're arguing against this vague theism, but you know this doesn't have any relevance to Christian theism. Mm-hmm. Oh but, no 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 no! But that's exactly <laughs> not true. Christian theism is going to be a particular version of general theism. Right. And it's going to be asserting more than general theism, which means that its intrinsic probability lowers. Yeah. So it's the problem, always easier to refute a specific understanding of God than a more general it, conception. It's very hard for most uh, apologists to offer strong arguments for the Christian God as opposed to just yeah. – Which mm-hmm. is why the best tend to only focus on a more general philosopher's exactly. God exactly. because it's safer for them to yeah. do so. The counter-apologists should be doing that as well because any argument that is a threat to general theism will also be a threat to specific versions of theism. The hypothesis he's going to be placing against this, uh, he calls the hypothesis of indifference. Neither the uh, nature of nor the condition of sentient beings on earth is the result of of beneficent or malevolent actions performed by non-human persons. Right, so this is kind of like naturalism, but yet it's not inconsistent with the existence of supernatural beings. So it's it's a much more, more humble conservative hypothesis. Than, yeah. Exactly, it's not saying that there are no supernatural beings. It's saying that if there are, they're irrelevant uh, when it comes to the well-being of conscious creatures. 
Now, the observations Draper is looking at here is observations concerning the reports of humans and animals experiencing pleasure and experiencing pain. And so his central claim here is that the hypothesis of indifference explains the facts O, which I will be getting into what O actually is, uh, exp- explains O much better than theism does. O? <laughs> and so the technical way uh, to, to think about this is that the, the antecedent probability of O is much greater on the assumption that the hypothesis of indifference is true than on the assumption that theism is true. Now, what I mean by antecedent probability is simply the probability that you would have the observations being true completely uh, abstracting away from those observations. So if you take those away, you think, how likely is it the case that we would actually expect these to be true? Before we know anything else. Right, right. What are we thinking? And so another important thing about this argument is that it deals with epistemic probabilities rather than uh, statistical, logical, or physical probabilities. So epistemic probabilities, those are interesting because they're not going to be the same for everybody. Right, Everybody is coming to the table with a different set of facts. And so epistemic probabilities can differ between different persons and within the same person at different moments in their life because not everybody has the same stock of knowledge that they do throughout their entire life. The argument uses the phrase biological goals, and this is kind of central to the argument, but this is not to be understood as a kind of conscious agent working towards some end, only as a kind of tendency intrinsic to some kind of Uh, natural system. So think of biological goals, for example, as things like survival or reproduction, right? These are things that the organic system will tend to work toward. So back to O, right? O is the general observations, but there's three specific O's that are included within this broad O. O1, O2, and O3 are, you know, the conjunction of those three are identical to the initial O. And the first one, O1, is the observation that moral agents are experiencing pain and pleasure that we know to be biologically useful. O2 is that sentient beings that are not moral agents are experiencing pain and pleasure that we know to be biologically useful. And O3 is that sentient beings experiencing pain or pleasure that we do not know to be biologically useful. Now, logically, the probability of O on, the, on a hypothesis is going to be equivalent to the probability of O1, O2, and O3 given that hypothesis, right? Because they're all just, they're all, we're talking about the logically identical here. We have to take them all together. But of course, this won't work when we want to assess epistemic probability of a hypothesis. It would be to ignore how these things relate to each other when it comes to background knowledge. So it gets a bit more complex. I'll just say the, the formula here. So the probability of O on a hypothesis is going to be the probability of O1 on a hypothesis multiplied by the probability of O2 given a hypothesis in O1 multiplied by the probability of O3 given the hypothesis and O1 and O2. So that sounds very confusing, but... In other words, in plain English, correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. we're just looking for the conjunction of all of those different facts together. And how they cumulatively right. build together. Yeah. yeah. We're not treating these as separate, entirely separate things we want to see. How do, how, what is the likelihood that all of these could be coexisting? Correct. And that requires extra math. Yeah. 
the way you can do it, so those three steps that I, I showed there, you want to show, okay, so remember I just, I just talked about the probability of O1 on a hypothesis, right? So what, what Draper's project is, is to say that once we replace hypothesis with theism or with the hypothesis of indifference, that the hypothesis of indifference will consistently better explain the O's in the formula better than theism on all three parts of that. Step one, show that the probability of O1 on indifference is greater than the probability of O1 on theism. Independent of the observations of O1, we know that humans are goal-directed organic systems aimed at their biological goals. So given that, if pain and pleasure exist, we'd expect on indifference that they would be similarly aimed. But pain and pleasure are importantly different than other other uh, biological ways to reach biological goals um, in that they have moral significance, right? So pain is bad, pleasure is good, and these strongly affect our well-being. So that obviously is going to play into it when it comes to theism, right, if you have a morally perfect being. On the hypothesis of indifference, given that pain and pleasure do exist, we don't really have any antecedent reason for thinking that the moral significance of pain and pleasure, as opposed to other parts of the organic systems would need to be similarly aimed at biological goals as with other organic systems. Just doesn't matter. Right. It's just, yeah, it, it's, you know, the, the world is indifferent to our, our pain or our pleasure. As, as Paul Draper writes, quote, a biological explanation of pain and pleasure is just the sort of explanation that one would expect on the hypothesis of indifference. But notice, when we go to the other side of that, of that equation, on theism, our antecedent expectations look very different. Uh, if God exists, he's at least ultimately responsible for the existence of all pain and of all pleasure in the world. So there can be a few things that can be said about this. One, God, being morally perfect, has good reasons for ensuring pleasure totally independent of biological goals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He might, of course, have reasons to tie some of them to biological goals, but, of course, that's completely unnecessary. He might have reasons to just bring about pleasure that is completely independent of biological goals. Just because it's good. Yeah, it's yeah. a good thing. So right. why would he not do that? And you could just flip that, right? Yeah. He'd have reason to avoid suffering. Exactly, exactly. God would not permit pain unless you know he had a biological reason and a morally justifiable reason. Hmm. Third... The omnipotence of God entails that he could create goal-directed systems like us without biologically useful pain or pleasure. In other words, God does not need biologically useful pain or pleasure to produce human goal-oriented systems like this. Oh, Let me cut in with a real-world example. I, I worked in an adult foster care home for several years. We had a young woman who uh, she could not feel anything below her waist. Mm -hmm. She had the tendency then to – she could get injured – and wouldn't know that she was even injured. You know, she developed a sore, a sore one time and it went undetected for a couple of days because she was capable of showering herself and everything else. And right. uh, That's how Christopher Reeve died, actually. He got – Christopher mm -hmm. Reeve was, you know, was uh, quadriplegic at the end of his life and he got bed sores yeah. and didn't know it because he – didn't move and he couldn't feel anything. Yeah. yeah. And so it can be a very serious thing. We had to, uh, you know, we had to monitor her a lot because, you know, she couldn't 
she couldn't do that herself. Uh, right. She was even more prone to taking risks too, because Ugh. you know she was, doesn't hurt. She felt invincible. Yeah, her mm-hmm. she getting around in her wheelchair was like a roller derby sometimes because <laughs> she had a great time doing it. And yeah. if she slammed her leg into a banister or something, it didn't matter to her. Right. Yeah. Now we could say, all right, well, that's a good reason why we need pain to survive. Right. <laughs> you know, right. is to avoid those types of things. Right. But God could just implant an alert system. It wouldn't have to be in the form of ow, suffering right. and misery. It could be some sort like of those cars with the the things that alert you when you're yeah, the fancy cars that alert yeah. you when you're going to back into something. It doesn't have to hurt yeah. the car for the car to go. Oh, hey, stop! Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. even an instinct could be triggered. Yep. A protective instinct without the accompanying physical sensation of torment. And so if it turns out, contrary to what we actually see, that pain and pleasure were not aimed at biological goals, then that would be unsurprising on theism, right? However, we know that they do contribute to biological goals despite their huge moral significance. So that seems pretty awkward on theism. And so because of that, the probability of this observation, O1, on indifference is is uh, more likely than the prob- than the probability of O one on theism. Now, step two, O O, as we'll be calling it. <laughs> step two, uh, Draper wants to show that the probability of O two on indifference and O one is greater than the probability of O two on theism and and O one. Now, O two, if you recall, is that sentient beings that are not moral agents are experiencing pain and pleasure that we know to be biologically useful. On the hypothesis of indifference, biologically, we know that there's no significant difference between sentient beings who are moral agents and sentient beings that are not moral agents, right? There's really not much different biologically going on there. And because O1 has already pointed out that moral agents experience biologically useful pain and pleasure, it's antecedently likely that on indifference and O1 that these two categories of sentient beings are sim- that, that they would be similar in that respect right that's that's likely but on theism you know can we not just also use the same reasoning and say well you know we could argue that you know sentient beings that are not moral agents would be just as likely to experience pain and pleasure on theism well no not really because remember if if theism is true then god permits the pain observed in O1 because it plays an important role, an important moral role, right? But if these are not moral agents, that line of thinking isn't available to them anymore. So we're talking about animals. Or uh, small children. Okay. That are not moral agents. That don't have a sense of right and wrong. Yeah, or that can't make morally interesting decisions. You can't bring in some sort of soul creation theodicy like Mm -hmm. we are becoming better individuals in the long run because of this or we appreciate Mm -hmm. pleasure more. It just doesn't – that doesn't have any impact. Right. I guess they would have to give us some sort of a priori reason why beings that are not moral agents, why their suffering is completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. For that yeah, to not yeah. be a moral challenge, and I I can't see why how yeah, you could no, make that yeah. statement. <laughs> and so again, you know, this shows that the probability of O two on the hypothesis of indifference plus O one is greater than the probability of O two on the hypothesis of theism and O one. Now, step three, Draper wants to show that the probability of O three given indifference plus O1 and O2 is greater than the probability of O3 
given theism in O one and O two. If you recall, the third O O three is that sentient oh. beings experiencing plainer pleasure that we do not know is biologically useful. Pain and pleasure that we do not know to be biologically useful includes some pain and pleasure that we know to be biologically gratuitous. Another uh, thing that this would include is pain and pleasure not known to be useful, but also not known to be gratuitous. Multiple orgasms. No? That's probably useful on some level. That's, yeah, that's, that builds character. It sucks. <laughs> it builds character. <laughs> I was thinking more that it sucks up sperm. That actually the, is, but, uh, that is one but, theory, yeah, there actually. You go. There you go. Uh, who knows? Uh, on theism, of course, we have much stronger reasons to expect sentient beings to be happy. On theism, in conjunction with O1 and O2, than we do on indifference in conjunction with 1 and 2. But, of course, that's exactly why O3 is so surprising, right? Many humans and animals experience prolonged and intense suffering. They rarely thrive, and they are very far from happy. Uh, as Draper notes, quote, We have more reason on theism O1 and O2 than on difference O1 and O2 to expect, to expect to discover a close connection between certain moral goods like justice and virtue and biologically gratuitous pain and pleasure. For example, um, an instance of pleasure that doesn't really seem to be connected with uh, biological goals, we would expect it to be very strongly connected with uh, strong moral goals, but mm. that's not really sure. what we see. Right. Um, and the same is true for you know the other way around, of course. On indifference, antecedently, we have much more reason to expect that the role played by pain and pleasure to be purely biological. On this hypothesis, bio biologically gratuitous pain and pleasure are just accidental results of the natural system, right? Nature doesn't care to fine-tune the moral relevance of organic systems in this way. That's, that's essentially the argument that he's making here. It's a, you know, it's a pretty complex argument, but I think you know, in each step along the way, it, it, just, it makes the gap between the observations on theism and the observations on indifference larger and larger. It's a very strong argument, I think part of his paper, he goes into the relevance of theodicies, right? So this, this conclusion here is independent of potential theodicy explanations. Theodicies, you know, as, as our listeners are going to be aware, are certain explanations, right? So they're going to, they're going to be positing certain claims about theism that in, in an attempt to raise the probability of the observations on theism. Yeah. To kind of close against that a, gap. Against a a right. problem of evil style so to, argument. To yeah. weaken the strength of the argument. So free will, we're used to that one. The right. free will theodicy, soul creation, which deals with character, skeptical theism, which is basically a cop-out and just says, <laughs> well, God might have a reason. Yeah. Right. That sort of thing. Or, or a theodicy you don't see as much, uh, but Gordon Graham from the UK defends is the uh, the Satan theodicy, basically. <laughs> we we have demons and Satan, and yeah. they, they are responsible for all this stuff. Yeah. So I want to quick uh, make a few comments about how to assess theodicies. What's interesting about the, the way that Draper suggests we do this is that you treat theodicies as auxiliary hypotheses, yeah. as add-ons to the core hypothesis mm. of theism. Now, once you do that, you have to ask yourself, well, uh, are there any antecedent reasons to think that this is likely to be the case? 
you know, yeah. rather than just positing your favorite holy book, yeah. right? What's more likely that this and that this auxiliary given theism is true, or do we have just as much antecedent expectation to expect it to be false, right? Mm-hmm. If there's yeah. not significant reason, significant antecedent reason to expect it to be true. All you're doing is positing a logically coherent scenario, which, of course, does nothing to evidential arguments. If you give yourself free license to do that, you could make a sound argument out of just about anything right, right. with enough auxiliary hypotheses. Exactly. Yeah, ignoring the fact that you're being completely promiscuous with your <laughs> – I mean that's, that's kind of the process that guides science, right? Contra pauper, the, the truth is people use auxiliary hypotheses and fudge factors all mm. the time in science. But they are seen as a kind of temporary embarrassing thing, you know, yeah. and uh, and we hope that as we come to learn more, we verify the truth of those right. hypotheses. And if, we try to make them independently yeah. testable. Yes, right. and if they don't ever reach that level and they are not as helpful as other theories, we abandon them eventually, at least ideally mm. we do. And so, for example, like the skeptical theism, Mm-hmm. auxiliary hypothesis, right? If we're going to treat this as a theodicy, then the question we need to ask ourselves is, is there any antecedent reason for expecting skeptical theism of the kind that would need to undermine this argument? Is there any reason to expect that? Remember, the argument, all it's doing is it's comparing the explanatory power of these two rival hypotheses. So the kind of skeptical theism one would need to uh, be of any significance to this argument would be a skeptical theism that posits not only is it the case that we don't understand God's reasons, but we can't even compare the explanatory power of theism to rival hypotheses, Hmm. right? Like how could you possibly bring about an antecedent reason for thinking that to be true? Yeah. So if they win, they lose because the (laughs) the entire presumption of this – or the entire reason why we entered into this argument – Right, is yeah. because we assume we assume these kind of arguments will tell us something about God. So yeah, so essentially what we're saying is that the reason the skeptical theism doesn't work on this is because antecedently there's no more reason to expect skeptical theism to be true on the core hypothesis of theism than to expect it to be false on the core hypothesis of theism. So the two reasons, you know, you might say, well, it's possible God has you know unknown reasons to allow this evil. Well, of course, but it's also possible that God has unknown reasons further unknown reasons to want to prevent it, mm. right? So yeah. those reasons yeah. cancel mm-hmm. out and you're left with your theodicy doing no work whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. an interesting – Both um, sides – I like that last point and maybe it deserves a bit of time lingering on it. The, yeah. the idea that if they're going to make this into a what-if game, that goes both ways. Mm-hmm. It's not just the theist that's entitled to make what-if claims about right. God. We could easily propose our own. And unless there really is some sort of reason to accept one of those hypotheticals over the other, then what if is not enough? And it can't be stressed enough that the reasons needed to justify to parse those two competing what ifs, Mm -hmm. they need to be antecedent to the core hypothesis of theism. They can't be just because you have a favorite passage in a holy book or something. Right. Um, Because that that does nothing for you. Exactly. Exactly. You're just assuming your theology. But yeah, so that's the argument, and that's uh, one of my most favorite papers right now. It's a really <laughs> <laughs> so. I brought this show and tell a reasonable <laughs> now. My favorite paper by Paul Draper. Um, what's What's pretty cool though is if anybody's interested in this, I'm pretty sure that if you Google 
and you type in PDF, it, it, the PDF is available online. So oh, cool. If anybody wants to look for it. Nice. Oh, well, if that's the case, we'll have a link to it on our blog.